So Snitcher is in, in quite a category and you all have managed as a really scrappy startup to get above a million ARR. How did you pull that off? A lot of work, man. <laughs> and we had a bit of resources to work with. We had some money to run ads and get some traffic coming in and actually start to grow it out. And since then, I think it's just been following the basics, trying to understand, okay, why are customers coming to us? What is it they need? What do they need to achieve? What resources do we need to give them in order to understand that what they want to achieve is possible with the product and then go about implementing the product to achieve their goals? And I guess I've built the sales process around that as well, that mm -hmm. it wasn't so much based on trying to sell people. It was more just based on, okay, you've come to us for a reason. So we call them scenarios. Under each mm -hmm. scenario is a couple of different use cases. So then we could chat with the customer about the different use cases that they could implement and see what they felt would move the needle the most. Every SaaS company plays for high stakes, but what does it take to dominate the market right now? Welcome to Paris Talks Marketing, the podcast where we dive deep into the latest trends and strategies in SaaS marketing that are really working today. I'm your host, Paris, and our guests are SaaS CMOs, founders, and specialists, and we discuss one trendy topic in the industry per episode. Ready to unlock the true power of marketing strategy? In this theme, we'll explore the world of cutting-edge marketing strategies and tactics that are shaking up the SaaS industry. We'll share insights on testing new tactics and uncover the latest developments from digital landscape giants like Google, Facebook, and LinkedIn. We'll also explore how AI is revolutionizing the digital landscape and transforming marketing tactics. So grab your headphones and get ready for a marketing strategy masterclass with Paris Talks Marketing. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Paris Talks Marketing. Today, my guest is Rowan Hayes. Rowan was born in South Africa, attended boarding school from a young age, and studied price risk management. He also lived in five countries to date. His professional journey began in the commodities industry before discovering a passion for marketing and winding his way into tech. This approach has made him a firm believer in a more systematic formula for growth. Outside of building Snitcher, he has competed at an international level in skydiving, representing the Dutch Canopy piloting team. When he's stuck on the ground working, you'll probably catch him talking to dogs. All right, Ron, welcome to the show. Hey, Paris. Thanks for having me. It's so many cool nuggets to unpack just in your, in your bio there. But I want to start with the talking to dogs thing. What is that about? Do you have dogs? No, I thought, well, I grew up with dogs. I grew up with dogs since I was, uh, when I was born, there was already dogs in the house. So, you know, very used to them. And uh, yeah, whenever I walk down the street and there's a dog, I'll go say, what's up? I obviously miss having, not having dogs at home. Um, my girlfriend definitely looks sideways at me when we're walking down the main street or whatever. And there's a dog there and I stop and start talking to the dog. Nice. And let's stop. Uh touch on the skydiving thing too because i we, we met at sasdoc and your colleague leon was also a skydiver which i thought was just one of the most badass professions why would you ever leave that to do something else when you when you're jumping out of planes for money it comes as risk and i think it also gets repetitive at the time because the way to make money through skydiving is taking people for tandems and mm -hmm. you're not actually competing or really progressing your own skill set when you're doing that you know it's a bit like being a bus driver in a sense and what you typically find is you start to get a bit burnt out because you're repeating the same jump over and over and over again and then on top of that the money's not great you know you, you get a flat 40 bucks per jump 50 bucks per jump type of story and you can only ever do 600 800 1000 skydives per season so mm -hmm. you, you're, you're capped and that's great when you're a 20 year old and you know you're fresh out, you're fresh out of school and you're making 30 40,000 bucks a year skydiving but if you're 55, 60 and you're still doing the same thing, it's not 
as nice. And then I started looking around and I saw a lot of the older guys, 55 years old, burnt out, really unhappy, not enjoying it anymore. And I just thought like, hey, I got into this because I loved it. And yeah. it was just fun all the time. So I don't really want to take something that I love that's a passion of mine and turn that into work and end up being old and hating it. Yeah. Do you still do it for fun? Yeah, fun? well, so since Snitcher, not nearly as much as I used to. I think I probably do about 30, 40 jumps a year now. Okay. Well, that's still quite a lot, actually. Well, so Rowan, we met at, at Sastock just last week. Seems like longer now. And you were one of about 120 exhibitors there. And I, I first met your colleague, Leon, and then came by the booth. But I want to hear, because a lot of our listeners do attend conferences like Sastock. Some of them might have gone to Sastock last week in Dublin. How was Sastock for you? Was it, was it worth it? Yeah, it was really cool. I, I really enjoyed it. We've been to a couple of small events before. Some were good, some not so good. Sastock was great because at least the audience is all interested in the same thing, you know, so the people you meet and, and, and have a conversation with. So we went to a, a, a Sastock local here in Amsterdam a couple of months ago, maybe longer mm -hmm. than the first one. Enjoyed it. And then we thought, okay, like, let's just get out of the office. Let's go meet some people. Let's have a bit of fun. Um, and I think going with that mindset, you're obviously always going to get a return. Cool. Did you, were you able to attend any of the talks? A few. We mm -hmm. went to a couple. I ended up mostly in meetings the whole way through. Um, we, we thought, okay, let's meet a couple of investors. Let's hear what they have to say. Let's find out what the capital markets look like at the moment. Met a couple of clients while we were there as well. And then there was a few people that had reached out to us as well with interesting propositions. So we thought, okay, let's meet. Let's have a conversation there. Yeah. I think for me, I also spent probably 75% of the time doing meetings and the other the other time I spent trying trying to catch some of the talks. What was clear to me, the overwhelming theme was AI and how AI is changing the way people work. And my one of my takeaways is that not only do all of us need to understand how to use these tools like ChatGPT and others to improve our workflows and productivity, but most SaaS companies have an imperative to bake these AI functionalities into their products now. Mm. And that's happening at a very fast pace. Do you have plans to try to incorporate any Gen AI functionality into Snitcher? I didn't get as much of that, but I don't think that, mm -hmm. that that filtered through to me as much. Through the conference, I didn't feel it nearly as much as I had six months ago when it was just all the noise everywhere. I, I, I kind of felt like it's, it's died down a little bit. It's becoming a bit more normal. In terms of incorporating mm -hmm. AI into Snitcher, we're definitely thinking about it. I mean, of course we are. At the same time, we're reticent to go and incorporate AI into the product just for the sake of incorporating AI. So we're sort of sitting back a little bit and just watching what happens in the market, how are companies doing this, you know, what what's a nice to have but does nothing AI baked into your product and what actually moves the needle with your customers. Yeah, and I, I do agree. Good. I've seen even in a lot of the SaaS tools that, that we use here, I, I've seen some pretty underwhelming uh, attempts at AI that does this or that. And recently we use ClickUp and ClickUp has an AI functionality, but I think that wasn't quite enough for the upgrade. Thing is, I mean, ChatGPT pretty much does it all, eh? I work with ChatGPT every day. I got it open mm -hmm. as a window every day. And then ChatGPT covers the basis of 90% of the use cases, you know? So yeah. baking something in that ChatGPT already does doesn't make sense to us. It's trying to figure out, okay, what is the ground that ChatGPT doesn't cover? And within that, what is actually going to be valuable to customers? Yeah, that's a good way to think about it. Let's take a step back and tell me what, what is Snitcher? What does it do and, and where does it fit into the modern MarTech stack? 
Yeah, sure. So Snitcher is a visitor identification platform purely for B2B. So what we do is we identify the companies that website visitors work for. And then you basically get a big list of all the companies that have been on your website. But along with that, you get a set of filters so you can really start to drill down into those organizations and find, okay, what is my ICP? What companies are actually in my target marketing, visiting my website, mix some behavioral filters into that to understand what are the really engaged ones? How did they find my website? And then we take that information, integrate with CRM. So you can push that into, you know, you can push that into HubSpot uh, for sales or whatever it might be. But you can also start to look at the customer lifecycle as well and understand, you know, okay, if I've, if, if I've got a lost deal and a company associated to the, the company associated to that lost deal is visiting the website, let's get a signal out to the rep that lost the deal and say, hey, go reach out. So mm -hmm. really trying to supply pieces of behavioral information relevant to each stage of the customer lifecycle. And then we also take it and put it back into Google Analytics. And the idea behind that is Google Analytics is a very quantitative heavy platform. You know, there's not a lot of qualitative insights within Google Analytics. It's all anonymous mm -hmm. data. So what we want to do with our customers is get the data back in there and get them to start understand, you know, what ads, what channels, what content is actually driving our target marketing and engaging with it. Or on the flip side, you know, what, what measures are we taking that's just driving a lot of bad traffic that we're never going to sell to? And let's turn those off and go mm -hmm. put the budget into something that's actually performing better. Yeah. So in terms of where it fits, it, it certainly fits in with integrating with CRM and with analytics. Can, can you actually send that to analytics and create an audience based on those companies? Yeah. So that's precisely what we do within GA. I mean, UA okay. used to create segments. Now you, now you still actually create segments and then off of the segments, you build an audience and yeah. you can take that audience and push it back to Google ads. Yeah, I, I think now one of the biggest, one of the nicest features of the upgrades to GA4 is that you can really now, and you should be integrating Google Analytics with Google Ads, because prior to that, if you if you were, uh, the only way to do data-driven attribution in Google Ads was to, to use it directly inside of Google Ads, but not importing audiences from Google Anal Analytics. But now with GA4, you can do that. You can do data-driven attribution and you can do really sophisticated audience building I think this is one of the most interesting use cases. If you've got, I mean, if starting with, if, if you've got a, a good volume of traffic and you can see, well, you can identify the companies and you can see what pages they go to and how far they progress down the funnel. You can run remarketing campaigns based on how far they went in the journey. So if somebody came to my homepage and then bounced, I still want to talk to them, but I have a certain message for them versus somebody that made it all the way to my demo booking page. And maybe even started filling out the form, but for whatever reason they didn't they didn't finish it. I, I I really want to talk to those people, and I have a I have a very different message for them. And then there could be some steps in between. There could be people that look at case studies. They could be people that read the blog. But the that that's where it gets really interesting. Thing is that you can you can create these very specific, highly segmented remarketing audiences, um, and then push push them back into Google Ads. So we're starting to test the demand gen ads now. And um, I think it has a lot of promise. And I think, I think it can really compete with other offerings on the social media platforms like LinkedIn. So that'll be interesting. So Snitcher is in, in quite a category and, and you all have managed as a really scrappy startup to get above a million ARR and above around 400 plus customers, paying customers with just three people. Is that right? Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Yeah, we hit a million so, two, three months ago now, yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. So how did you pull that off? A lot of work, man. <laughs> well, so I didn't start it. Yeris started it. He started it five, six years ago as a side project. 
and we got together about two years ago now. And how did we achieve it? Well, he suffered through the flat bit. He suffered through the really flat bit and, and, and got it off the ground, got the first bit of revenue coming in, you know, so then we had a bit of resources to work with in terms of we had, a, we had some money to run ads and get some traffic coming in and actually start to grow it out. And since then, I think it's just been following the basics, trying to understand, okay, why are customers coming to us? What is it they need? What do they need to achieve? What resources do we need to give them in order to understand that what they want to achieve is possible with the product and then go about implementing the product to achieve their goals. And I also built the sales process around that as well, that mm -hmm. it wasn't so much based on trying to sell people. It was more just based on, okay, you've come to us for a reason. It's probably one of three or four reasons. So we call them scenarios. So we built out a list of scenarios. So they're here for three or four scenarios. Under each mm -hmm. scenario is a couple of different use cases. So then we could chat with the customer about the different use cases that they could implement and see what they felt would move the needle the most or made the most sense with their tech stack and then work mm -hmm. with them to go and implement it and try to do that in quite a scalable way. You know, the scenario playbook thing works pretty well because you sort of take the guesswork out of the window and you just slot someone into a scenario and then pick mm -hmm. the playbooks relevant to that scenario. And then with PLG strapped up to that, you can actually start to serve customers you, you can look at the scenario they're going through and serve them the playbooks that they want along the way. Great. I'm trying to pull up the website right now. There's three use cases that are very clear, and they're also in the solutions drop down, which is for sales, you can discover, qualify, and prioritize high intent target leads. For marketing, reduce waste, personalize the journeys, improve the re retargeting or remarketing, which is what we just talked about. And for agencies like us, drive more qualified leads for your clients. And that's all really interesting. So I can immediately, for me, I can immediately identify with the persona of agency, or as you call it, the my scenario is an, is an agency. We do use the scenarios a little differently. So the way we use the scenarios is we say, okay, is it 80% organic traffic, 20% paid, if in, the, if in the case of a marketer, or is it 80% paid, 20% organic? Mm -hmm. So that would be two different scenarios. Pure ABM would be a different scenario. And then based mm -hmm. off of their marketing mix effectively, which is their scenario, we can then pick a use case and then we go and look into the sales team and say, okay, what's happening with sales? Do they have a high volume of deals with a low ticket price or do they have a low volume of deals with a high ticket price? And then there's mm -hmm. use cases under each. I love that. That's getting the wheels turning in a big way. So let's say you got 80% organic, 20% paid. Then should you be looking at how well, the, the, the question, the first question is, am I bringing the right kind of companies in my organic strategy? So would they then think about, hey, am I producing the right types of content or what else could they be thinking about if it's 80, 20 organic paid? Typically what we find with companies that have a lot of organic traffic is they have a relatively low percentage of ICP or ideal customer profile traffic coming over the website because they mm -hmm. just can't really control that variable. I mean, some do quite a good job of writing bottom of the funnel SEO content or middle of the funnel SEO content that's way more targeted. But for the most part, a high organic website's not going to see a lot of relevant traffic. So then it's just figuring out, mm -hmm. okay, what of the bit of relevant traffic that's being driven, what is driving, you know, if we had to look at the topic, the concept of topic clusters, trying to figure mm -hmm. out which topic cluster is performing best with the target markets. And then it's like, okay, well, let's continue to double down on that. And then let's mm -hmm. look into the paid and see how paid is moving the needle and try to understand of the qualified traffic, can you actually better retarget that um, mm -hmm. and use the bit that you do have more effectively and then start looking into paid to actually drive a higher volume of qualified traffic over the website. Gotcha. 
So this really is, are we talking about account-based marketing here? If I, wouldn't it... say, I wouldn't say account-based marketing. I mean, you can definitely use it for account-based marketing. You've got your 200 mm -hmm. list of, you got your 200 target accounts and you know, you're running through various channels to pull them onto the website. But I, I, I like to look through an account-based lens, not account-based marketing, but just try to understand how many accounts, businesses currently in my marketing funnel, in my sales funnel are actually capable of purchasing my solution. Because I could, if I'm selling to software companies and a CMO, I could have a CMO from a retail company, but they're not going to buy from me because it's not the right fit. So mm -hmm. I prefer to start with the companies and figure out, do I have the right fit of companies here? And if I've mm -hmm. got the right fit of companies, then I can start to try and tweak it for the persona. Gotcha. I, I think that's a very sensible approach. If someone's, if a company is unqualified, what's the point of going any deeper into any specific roles? Yeah. Precisely, yeah. yeah, and and the, what what a tool like Snitcher does is it allows you to group those companies by any type of dimensions. I can group them by size, geography, by industry, and then I can bring a remarketing list into GA, and then and then later into Google Ads, which is grouped by that dimension which I care about. So I could say if I'm targeting cybersecurity companies, I can group that segment from the Snitcher data and then create an audience for uh, of an industry specific audience in GA and then remarket yep. to that audience with industry content. Yeah, precisely. You did hit the nail early on the head. Uh, you hit the nail on the head earlier, Paris, when you mentioned having enough website traffic or data. I mean, yeah. if you've only got sort of 300, 400 companies visiting your website a month, it's very difficult to start to do this. You know, you need a bit of data mm -hmm. to play with. So five, 6,000 hits a month plus, and you can actually yeah. start to dive into these audiences. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, we could really go down the rabbit hole when it comes to segmentation and then micro segmentation. And I'm thinking, I mean, a tool like Snitcher, it has such a massive TAM. The, the, the addressable market is huge here because it's practically, how, how do you narrow that? If you got, you, you've got use cases for sales, for marketing and for agencies, but that's in the millions of, of ICPs right there. So how do you narrow that down either by industry, by company size, or by geography, by something else? Are you able to narrow that down into a TAM that you can really address more narrowly? Yeah, definitely. So we started off with size. We ran a couple of calculations. Like we realized with enterprise clients that it just doesn't make sense for us. Mm -hmm. The time and the energy that goes into winning an enterprise deal and the value that we get from it, we can. it's, it's much easier to go and win five or six smaller deals that are worth m more revenue at the end of the day. So then we basically ruled anything of 500 employees or more, which, okay, not quite enterprise, but 500 employees or more we ruled out. And then mm -hmm. on the bottom end, we looked at companies with less than 10 employees and we just realized, you know, they don't have the bandwidth or the resources on the marketing or the sales front typically to actually use this kind of data. And, the, and the, most the, likely the, they don't have the traffic either to their website no, if that's small. Precisely, you know, so then that's how we took the first step of kind of narrowing in. Okay, so we're looking at like 10 plus employees to a maximum of 500. In reality, it's mm -hmm. more about 300. And then... From there, it made sense businesses selling high ticket items, because if they can get one identification or one signal and close a big deal, the tool automatically makes sense for them. So yeah. that's your old school businesses, manufacturing, industrial automation, et cetera. But what we found with them is they use the tool in a very, I guess, simplistic way. It was just a list of leads to them. And that's not the direction we wanted to go in. You know, we didn't want to just be a leads provider. So what we started to mm. understand is financial services companies, software, IT, marketing, especially, 
bit more yeah. tech savvy and a bit more capable of using the data in a variety of different ways. And as we built out these use cases, they could take the use cases and really run with them. You know, we didn't have to hold their hand all the way to the end. We started to focus more in on, on the industries that are a bit more tech savvy and, and at the same time also have a higher volume of, of traffic. Yeah, it make, makes a lot of sense. If you've got a high ACV, the ROI from a tool like this is a no-brainer. Payback is immediate as soon as you as soon as you have one successful experience or use case closing one deal. I'm looking at the pricing page now and I remembered we t we talked a bit or it could could have been my chat with Leon, but you all certainly are competing with with a couple of gorillas in the category like Lead Forensics and Lead Feeder. And I remember that you all do differentiate on your pricing model. Can you can you talk a little bit about how you how you do things differently there with pricing? So I think lead forensics from the bit that I do understand is very much value-based pricing. You know, you can have mm -hmm. a conversation with 10 different customers or prospects of theirs and they'll all get different pricing for the same amount of website traffic. Don't take me at word for that one, but that's the experience that I've had. So mm -hmm. we decided, okay, let's be just super clear and very transparent. You know, this is what you have and this is what you pay for. Lead Feeder followed mm -hmm. a similar pricing model. They've had a merger recently, uh, or about a year ago, and, and they changed their pricing model. They've definitely moved, tried to move up markets and made the pricing model more complex. So for us, it made sense just to keep it simple, keep it transparent, and don't overcharge customers for the identifications. You know, our price per identification, mm -hmm. we decided to keep that low. Gotcha. I'm, I'm pulling up Lead Forensic pricing page, but they don't show pricing, which really annoys me. They, they show the plans and the comparison of the plans but no prices, whereas okay. you guys are much more transparent. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's definitely helped us You know, when, when you're having a conversation with someone and you can go onto the website, you can just show them this is how many company identifications you get a month, this is what you're going to pay for it. And then it's a case, something I think we do pretty well is break down the price for them. You know, So initially they're looking at, okay, they're getting 2,000 identifications a month, it's going to cost them mm -hmm. 249 and that's how they look at the bill. But starting to, as you go through these scenarios, the different marketing and sales scenarios and get into the use cases, you can actually take that price and break it down into a few different areas. You know, so, okay, 20% of the traffic is qualified. So that's a portion of the bill that goes towards uh, leads for sales. But then 20% mm -hmm. of the traffic is completely irrelevant. It comes from education or whatever it might be. Mm -hmm. industry sectors that you're just never going to sell into. So that you can start to use as an exclusion list within Google. So there's a value put onto that. And then there's the retargeting in the mm -hmm. analytics. So you can actually take that 249 and break it down across potentially two departments and a couple different areas within each department. And we, and we found in doing that, that sort of changes the number and makes it look a lot cheaper uh, mm -hmm. and make a lot more sense because there's multiple areas of value and, and a piece of, of, of the prices assigned to each area of value. Yeah, I like that a lot. It's a lot more simplistic. I mean, I have it up here starting at 39 a month. And then a tiered tiered structure as the identifications grow. And and just to be clear here, if if you wanted to build a remarketing list of, let's say, you identified two hundred companies, your remarketing list is not two hundred, but it's it might be all of the marketing and sales people in those companies. So maybe you target ten people per company. So it's not two hundred, but it's two thousand. And then then you've got an audience size that's potentially large enough for something like customer match or other re remarketing lists. Because one other thing. It's very important with remarketing is that you need also you need size you need a, a large enough list um, to to have any meaningful results from that. Yeah, um, that, that that is as I said earlier, you know, you hit the nail on the head with having a bit of volume coming through, and the same is yeah. true of LinkedIn as well. 
So you, you all are pretty savvy in competitive selling. You've got you've got a more simplistic pricing structure and more transparent. Now, a quick word from our sponsor. The Paris Talks Marketing Show is affiliated with Hop Online, a performance marketing agency focused on high-growth SaaS and other recurring revenue-based companies. If you like the flow of this conversation, you may want to consider jumping on a discovery call with someone at Hop Online. A discovery call is similar to my podcast interviews in a lot of ways. We'll get to know your business goals, competitive landscape, and marketing needs. And you'll almost certainly come away with some new ideas for how to accelerate your customer and revenue growth. If you're interested, go to hop.online, that's hop, H-O-P dot online, and book a discovery call with one of our strategists today. Now, back to the episode. Uh, how, how else are you all doing c- competitive selling against the likes of Lead Forensics, Lead Feeder? Well, I think the PLG process that we've got together now works pretty well. We we don't uh, we know Lead Forensics is very very sales heavy, and we know that Lead Feeder is going to put in a lot of sales touch points through the trial. And mm-hmm. my personal opinion, and and Yeri was the same as me, is if we've signed up for a trial, like we do, maybe want a little bit of help, but at the end of the day, we signed up for a trial. We didn't sign up for a sales process. So mm-hmm. the approach that we've taken is let's provide them with the resources along the way, scenarios, use cases that they can help themselves. And what we typically find is customers end up reaching out to us at a certain point because they want a bit of help with someone. They've got a question because they've managed to do something and they got a couple ideas from it. Like, oh, wow, can I try and do this or can I do that? And then when you start that conversation, you start it from you're actually just helping them. You're not selling to them. And I find that that goes mm-hmm. down a lot better. And then within utilization of the data, I think we've probably got a bit of an unfair advantage in that, you know, with two founders, okay, now Leon's come in, our understanding and knowledge on, on marketing and on sales, and then how to apply the data to marketing and sales is a lot better than, you know, your average rep or your average account manager at one of the competitors who's not, never been a marketer. And okay, they've probably been a salesperson, but that's about it. So mm-hmm. that is an unfair advantage. But at the same time, that does come with consequences because now as we start trying to figure out, okay, how do we actually begin adding people in and, and growing the team? How, how do we mm-hmm. scale that? Because we can't scale ourselves. And that, that's actually, I think, what forced us into a deeper level of the scenarios in the playbooks is mm-hmm. working with Leon as he was coming in and, and teaching him realizing like I need a systematic way for him to be able to say, if this, then that. Yeah. Um, so do you find yourself and, and your co-founder and Leon getting pulled into a lot of sales calls, consultative sales calls? A fair amount. Yeah, not so much. Yeah, yeah is more on the product side of things. So he tries to keep his head down over there. I did a lot of sales for a long time. And Leon now is, uh, you know, he's starting to take more and more of that over. I still find myself in sales calls with bigger accounts. But yeah, it's, it, I can't, my, my feeling of it is it's not really, I don't feel like it's ever really been sales calls. It, it's, it's more been stage one of the onboarding. And that's how I've approached mm-hmm. it. You know, the first call, even though it's during the trial, this is stage one of onboarding. And mm-hmm. what's the biggest problem that you're occurring? And can we solve that problem with this product? Yes. Okay. Well, let's go and set that up stage one of the onboarding and if i can get stage one of the onboarding right and people can understand well there's stage two three four five six seven eight then they get excited and by extension then they actually want to purchase because they want to get to the next stages yeah gotcha 
So the the, the trial is it uh, fourteen days? And right right now, roughly, how many of your trials are converting to paid? If we had to clean out, so we get a bit of trash coming through the trials. You know, signing up with the Gmail address and adding Google as the website to be tracked and stuff. So if we clean that out, mm -hmm. we've got about twenty five percent. Oh, okay. That's that's not too bad. So 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 some people the, the junk that seventy five percent that churns out of the trial are they um, they're identified by using a non work email and then and then they'll put the tracker or they'll put the domain as not uh, their own domain. Oh no no no. So we filter that out first and then we look at okay. trial to trial to to paid rate and twenty five percent of what could be potential purchases qualified. Okay, qualified trials. Yeah, qualified trials will go on to purchase. Yeah. And then we split. So we run a touch, no touch process. So smaller accounts below 349 a month. And we're not, we're not really going to touch them much. Whereas accounts larger than 349, we will drop them a message or two, especially now that Leon's come through, we've got the bandwidth to do it. We will drop them a message or two through the trial and basically yeah. just try and find an insight. Hey, you know, hey man, I found this that likely has an implication for your paid advertising or, you know, like looks like. A lot of your SEOs driving unqualified accounts. Is this the case? Would you like to have a, a conversation on, on mm -hmm. how we would fix that or what we would do with it? Yeah. I imagine that a lot of people really need, they need that consultative approach to, to give them the ideas, the plays from that playbook that they're, they may not be aware of. And when you all are acquiring, and I, I presume you, you all are acquiring leads, free trial leads through, uh, through paid search, are you all acquiring them on the basis of, of the sign up or the qualified? the qualified trial that meets a certain criteria of company size. Well, we look at both. So, we, I mean, we look at the total number of signups we drive, and then we look at the total number of signups that install a tracker. Um, and then we look at the number of signups that have installed the tracker that could potentially purchase the product. Yeah. Are you, are you asking the size question in a form field or are you just, are you enriching that with a third party? Yeah, we do that on the back end ourselves. Yeah. So you, you can, you, you do an enrichment to get the, the company size and industry. So you've got company size and then installing the tracker is really, that's the time to value for product-led growth, isn't it? That, that's the indication that they are, they're really able to use the product. Well, you all are not charging annually, but you're charging per month, right? Uh, larger customers we bring on to annual plans. Yeah. You, get, you get lock them in on annual. And do you, uh, do you try to go after a specific payback period on that acquisition cost? I like to payback periods at about four and a half months now. But that's total, that's total marketing sales, everything acquisition costs. And I, li I like to keep it in and around there. It's sort of like as mm -hmm. we grow and as we increase expenditure, I like to try and keep the payback period in and around four, four to five months. Yeah, um, that's good, good discipline there. Well, I guess it also depends if you're raising, are you all raising money or have you raised in the past? No, fully bootstrapped. Okay. Um, so yeah, hence a bit more discipline with that side of things. Yeah, um, I hear you. Yeah. Yeah. I've seen the, the, the funded companies, particularly during COVID when the, the valuations were booming, I've seen that, and this was dictated by the, in the, by the VCs, but payback periods were going to 12 months, 16 months, 24 months. And then it starts to get, I think it starts to get really shaky if, if you're going to push the payback period out further than a year, I mean, you better have something really special because to me, that's, that's just too long for that cash not to come back. It really depends there, Paris. You know, if you're selling multi-million dollar deals with uh, multi-year contracts, then yeah, sure, push it out to a year or two. Good point, um, yeah. But, f you know, for us, we're, where we sit with like our lifetime values and our ACV, like, four and a half months is a good bet, you know, that we can have a real healthy uh, LTV to CAC of like four, 
So, you know, mm -hmm. prefer to prefer. Yeah, to that keep, is very healthy. Yeah, mm -hmm. prefer to keep that in shape. And really, I guess it's just trying to set the pace. You know, we can start to tweak it and move it as we go. And especially now as we start to hire, um, we mm -hmm. really want to get people that are going to come in and bring a completely new skill set to the table that we don't have. I think the best possible job that we could have done as founders is just set a stable base for them to work off of. Yeah, yeah let's talk about that. So you, you guys are still three people, everybody doing a little bit of everything. But who are your next, who are your next three to five hires? So definitely a developer. Uh, we got a, we got mm. a developer coming in. We just agreed that we work together, so he's coming in soon. Oh, after that, maybe someone else on, on the dev side of things, and then potentially an account manager. But I don't really know if it, if it would be someone in a traditional account management role or more just looking at this no touch touch retention model that we have and trying to figure out like, okay, well, how do I optimize the no touch retention side of things, and then. Looking at the touch side, I'm helping, uh, you know, I do a lot of work with customers. Leon runs what is now a full sales cycle. You know, he sells to people and then he works with them after they've purchased as well. And then they would support that. But more importantly, you know, like how can we try to take technology and turn the touched retention piece into a lower touch retention piece? So I don't think a traditional account manager is really going to fill that role, be, I guess, sort of a bit like a product manager slash account manager. Yeah. Uh, I was going to say maybe a CSM, a customer success manager who can, th their KPI is retention and upsell. Maybe. I think the, the, the tricky thing that I've seen with CSMs in, in the SaaS industry is they've not actually worked in the job roles of the people they're helping. Yeah. You know, they did sales for a while and then they became yeah. a customer success manager, or maybe they've only ever been a customer <clears throat> success manager. And I really don't think that that moves the needle. Like they can look after mm -hmm. 50 accounts and they can have meetings with them every so often and check, you know, integration scores, you know, have they integrated different systems? Are they active, et cetera? Let me give them a nudge. But they can't really help them because they haven't worked in their role. So for us, CSM yeah. type retention manager would be someone that's actually spent a few days in a marketer's shoes and spent a few days in a sales manager's shoes and mm -hmm. because of that then they understand these are the challenges that these this is the challenges that these people are going through and this mm -hmm. is how through our data i can actually go and help them yeah do you ever look at what's happening with your customers traffic if if uh, let's say one of the, one of the customers starts to really crush it with seo or maybe maybe they double down on ppc but they got a traffic spike does that raise a flag for you all that you all should go and engage that customer to tell them how to handle that, uh, that increased traffic in some way? Yeah, if there's a big spike, for sure. To be honest, mm -hmm. I find our customers are really cool because what will happen is, you know, someone's paying three forty nine a month and they turn on some paid ads and they completely blow out the bill and it goes up to seven forty nine a month. And they'll, mm -hmm. they'll end up coming into the support chat or sending me an email and just saying, like, hey, Rowan, like we got whacked with a big bill this month. And then we'll jump on a call and say, okay, let's figure this out. From my side, we still supplied the data, you know, so we did do what we needed to do. But on their end, I get it as well, because basically they spiked their traffic. They didn't get a lot yeah. of value out of that spike. So then typically we'll have a bit of a conversation and say, okay, like, how do we find the equitable path forward? Is this going to be the new mm -hmm. level? And if it is, like, how are you going to deal with it? At the same time, we've also got a lot of customers that have done that, blown the traffic through the roof. And then mm -hmm. it's only really been through Snitcher that they've realized like, oh, I blew the traffic through the roof and I'm not actually going to get anything out of this. So then they don't mind paying an extra month or two with the traffic higher because at the end of yeah. the day, the tool was the thing that told them the actions you've taken are not actually going to turn into any revenue. 
Yeah. Well, yeah, I guess I imagine that's that's nice of you all to be willing to negotiate, but maybe not so scalable long-term when you've got 4,000 or 40,000 customers making these kind of exceptions. But but I think at this point, it shows that you're willing to to work with your customers. Precisely. Because I, I yeah. That's it. We're all in the yeah. game to win. Like if, if our customers are not having a good time and they're not winning themselves, then we're certainly not going to do very well. Yeah, that's that's absolutely the right approach. Let's pivot over to SEO. I wanted, wanted to make sure we had enough time for this. I've been through your website. We've talked about the playbooks and the plays that that fall into the marketing use cases, the sales use cases, and then there's an agency there's an agency use case or, or persona. But I don't really see a lot of documentation of these plays. And we were talking earlier about SEO and the impact that AI will have on SEO. As a quick side note, there was a great speaker from Jasper, Jasper AI. I think she was the CMO. And she predicted that probably in the near term, about 25% of SEO or organic traffic could be gone as a result of AI. Not, not because people are generating more and more AI content, but, but because the zero-click searches are going to rise because the search the Google's, uh, what they call the search generative experience, the SGE, where they pretty much put the, they put their, their AI answer up on top, which results in a zero click search, but that that increase of the zero click searches is going to wipe out about 25% of organic SEO traffic. I kind of believe that too. I don't know how fast it's going to happen, but you and I were talking about content generation and content marketing. And historically, this is, has been the way to, to build a brand. And for you, it's it's a strategic imperative to build the Snitcher brand so that you can you can be among the top two or three in your category within a couple of years because you do have the product excellence to support that. But if if everyone is basically going to be turning to these tools to generate content, and the content is good actually and it's useful, and Google recognizes it, recognizes it as being helpful to the user, and Google ranks it, and some of it's produced by Google's own horse in the race, Bard. Then is it a race to the bottom with SEO? Are we basically going to start looking at all content on the web that's that's ranked by Google that we go see as being AI generated with no limit in terms of its scalability? So if I used to be blogging four, six, eight times a month, now I'm blogging forty times a month with AI, and I'm flooding uh, I'm flooding the internet with all this AI driven content. But I have to do it because my competitors are doing it. So wh- where is that leading us? And then can, can you still build a brand in that world with SEO and content marketing, if that's where it's headed? It's a difficult question. Qu- like, quite the long wind up for that question. Yeah, too, but, yeah, yeah. Yeah, uh, that's a tricky one, Paris. I think it's been a, bra- a race to the bottom for, for, for a long time now. Like looking at content, uh, I can't tell you how many times I'm searching for something. And <laughs> then, then, you know, I find a, an article listed highly click on it and then I get on it and it takes me two minutes to realize like, well, not even two minutes, it's just SEO laden dribble. So I think that the race to the bottom has been happening for quite a long time and AI has just dramatically sped that up. Yeah. AI is making that dribble sound a little bit more cohesive, but it still is. Much better. And it's it's an advantage because we've all got Mm -hmm. it, you know. So yeah, then the big question is how do you build a brand? At the same time, I I don't necessarily think it's a bad thing because Having looked at a lot of SEO heavy websites, what I typically find is that there's a low percentage of, of, of ideal traffic, as I mentioned earlier. So I think it's going to kind of remove this idea of, okay, we need to start a blog, we need to write content, and we're going to get free website traffic, and we're going to get free business out there. 
and start to people are going to start to look at it and think okay well there's an opportunity cost to doing that so we can take the ai and we can do that um but we're not really going to move the needle anymore because everyone's doing that so what is the opportunity cost to content what else is out there that we could be doing that we can actually control the quality of what comes through it and is that a better investment you know so linkedin might linkedin might be a good example of this so now we're in a world where most of the content that we're going to see when we search is going to be ai driven and you said that's not necessarily a bad thing and it's connected to the fact that a lot of the organic traffic coming to many websites the non-branded organic traffic isn't very qualified anyway so can you can you take it from there yeah sure I think it's about opportunity cost. I think a lot of a lot of businesses, a lot of markets didn't ask themselves what is the opportunity cost to producing content. You know, so I get a content writer, produce content, and that made sense because it was a free way of acquiring traffic. Well, it's not free. You know, and then you have to pay someone to write the content. You have to spin up the pages. There's an investment that goes into that. And mm -hmm. now, because everyone can push a lot of content super cheaply, people are going to start thinking. Basically, what is the opportunity goes like, what else should we be doing? Should mm -hmm. we be running more paid ads? Okay, we don't have the budget for that. But then what's another way that we can start to actually control the quality of what comes through? Maybe LinkedIn's a good option. You know, we're seeing more and more webinars coming out as well. So people are starting to look around for how else do I acquire an audience? And I think that that's a good mm -hmm. thing because it's just forcing change. It's been, yeah. the state has been here for a long time. And I think change is never a bad thing. What the answer is, I have no idea if I had a crystal ball, uh, I would definitely be yeah. looking into it right now. Yeah. Well, you mentioned, yeah, where, where is the audience? I mean, maybe the audience is going to shift from primarily being your website audience to an audience somewhere else, like on LinkedIn, or maybe your podcast audience or your webinar audience or something else that you, so if you, if, if a brand tries to become a media company, the the, the blueprint that HubSpot really yeah. proved out several years ago, then your, your, your brand's media company will have lots of different hubs. You're going to have a hub on YouTube, on LinkedIn. You might, have, uh, you might even have a, another, another website that's, that's not your commercial website, but it's really for your media, your, your podcasts and webinars and mm. all your video content. But I think it's becoming more decentralized, really. And, I, and in a way, that, that certainly will impact you, Snitcher and your category too, where if your audience hub isn't totally concentrated in your website anymore, it starts to become distributed out to channel, LinkedIn page, LinkedIn personal profiles of your C-levels and whatever else, then you gotta, you got to think about it entirely differently. But the fact remains, in my opinion, that it's even more important to build a brand in that, in that kind of environment. Even more important to build a brand. I completely agree with you in that. And I think mm -hmm. the media, media houses becoming a media house is probably the future you know people also want to be entertained mm -hmm. being a media yeah. house is part entertainment <laughs> part education and mm -hmm. at the same time uh, and i think of crossing the chasm when i say this now you know word of mouth is the most powerful form of marketing and companies for a while now especially with the vc backed scale hard lots of money to do it i think have, have at times got away with building massive marketing and sales teams that are high functioning and driving a lot of growth through that you know and if you start to take away the ability for marketing and sales teams to acquire customers as easily as they could in the past because it's not just marketing that's experiencing this issue on the content side or will experience this issue on the content side it's also sales is, you know, we start to look around, we start to chat to customers and we realize that outbound sales, more and more people are struggling with it. 
some people are doing really still really doing well, but a lot more businesses are struggling with outbound. And mm -hmm. under that light, like if you can't quite as easily acquire customers as you used to, then by extension, it becomes more and more important to have a product that's just really good and does the work for you. Yeah. Yeah. I think outbound, outbound's been there forever. Um, even from the days of cold calling, I still think that happens a lot. Mm. And, and it, even outbound's getting juiced up a little bit now with AI. You can, you can do personalization at scale with, with cold email outreach. But so, I do think there's, there's still an over-reliance on outbound with, with, with salespeople. You're playing, you're playing the, the numbers game. If I, if I'm going to make a hundred calls, only one, only one of them might progress to the next stage or send a hundred emails or whatever it is. And AI is doing exactly the same thing on the content side of things, because AI can mm -hmm. now go and, and, and make the average sales email a bit better, but it's going to massively ramp up the volume. So the noise just goes through the roof and the email providers are getting better at filtering the spam out as well. Yep. Um, so it's, yeah. it's the same problem. That said, I'm still shocked by how many non-personalized absolute crap emails that I'm getting. Man. Not even putting my name into the yeah in, in the merge tag. The best is the hello dear. I get a few of those for SEO guest posts. And <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. Hello dear, and uh, or or sometimes it's just hello blank with a comma. But yeah, that's that's really lazy approach. But I think those are the those are the folks that are that are doing huge volumes yeah. and, and they don't even care. Yeah, I guess that, that game is still out there a lot, but and, and it's going to become more and more personalized. And I guess the, the recipients, for those that still get, get through to the inbox, I think the recipients are going to also start to develop more. They're going to become more and more numb to even personalized emails and wondering, all right, this, is, this was a bot. Clearly it went and it's, it scraped this sentence off of the LinkedIn company page description or something or whatever else. But I think there's still a window for outbound because I, I think that 95% of the outbound stuff is still complete garbage and uh, they haven't really embraced the, the AI tools that are there yet. But that window, like everything else, it's going to close. But for, yeah, for sales, I mean, getting back to building a brand, I mean, I think, I think now more and more the, the brand needs to be connected with the personal brand of the CEO or the founder or, or some high-level C-level C, C person. And I do think people, because people want to follow people on LinkedIn mm. and they will equate and ascribe val the value of that person's company based on the, the personality of the, of the CEO. And I think that that's becoming an imperative also that building a brand also means building the personal brands of the, of the leadership in that company Likely, that supports the vision and the mission. And, and the, I think that's, that's really important. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we we definitely starting to see that it's conversations that we we're having internally a fair bit. Difficult mm -hmm. because neither my partner or I like this is not my thing. Um, yeah, you know, we don't like being on LinkedIn. We don't like posting. We've tried it a couple of times. We said to ourselves, okay, we're gonna do it. We like got the whiteboard out. You know, we put sticky notes on the whiteboard. Post on LinkedIn. Post on LinkedIn. Post on, and we could keep it up for a week, man. And then it just mm -hmm. felt like, you know, why am I doing this? There's things that can move the needle so much more than, than writing some posts on LinkedIn. But then at the same time, as you say, like the, the brand of the founder and the brand of the company is, is, is becoming far more interconnected. Yeah, pe people are looking at that. I mean, there, there are a lot of examples, but we talked about this guy, Chris Walker, who we both see a lot on LinkedIn. And, and then, of course, there's Gary Vaynerchuk. We all know what these, these people have built up their personal brands. I mean, their personal brands are driving their companies entirely. Yeah. I mean, people want to hire VaynerMedia because because of Gary V's brand, and it's it's because of the personal brand. And it's not it's not always easy, and not every CEO wants to really come out from behind the curtain and and 
and, and make that kind of investment. But I think looking at Snitcher, I think the best way for you all to get started would be to launch a podcast and to produce those plays for those playbooks mm. through conversations, recorded po- conversations with your customers on a podcast and then yeah. give those podcasts to whoever to repurpose that into, into the playbooks that you can publish because that stuff is not possible to be generated right now with, with AI, I think. It, these are the stories. You can't ask ChatGPT to tell you, how is my, my top customer using Snitcher today? I mean, they simply won't know, but you'll have to get it out through an interview. That's I think that's the way forward. Yeah, that's not a bad chance at all, though, Paris. It's not a bad chance. That's, speaking of the hires, you asked, you know, you know, who are the next hires? And we spoke about someone on the dev side and someone sort of more on the retention side of things. Um, the other one we're thinking about is someone specifically to fill that gap, you know, to start to engage with our customers more and produce more content for our customers and manage processes like that, like like the one that you spoke about now. Certainly makes sense for that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I mean, I think the best plays are the ones that you're your best customers are using today. Mm. And if you get those stories, then those are the stories and the, the plays that educate. So, you know, the 80-20 rule or the 90-10 rule is that probably 10% of your customers have amazing plays that the other 90% could really learn from. Yeah. Or how do you make that happen? Yeah. yeah. Well, this has been awesome, uh, Rowan. I think I've, I've monopolized uh, way more of your time today than I had planned. And we could go on and on here. Tell me, what did I not ask you that, that you wished I would have asked you or any, anything else that you think would benefit our audience? Cool. You've got to leave the most difficult one for last, eh, Paris? That's the, that's the most open-ended one, yeah. I suppose maybe not what you would have asked me, just what I would have said. And, and to me, let's just do the basics well. Maybe I touched on it earlier when you asked how we got to a million and just doing the basics well. And I'd like to reiterate that. In today's landscape, there's a lot of stuff pulling marketers and salespeople, everyone in different directions. You know, you've got to do this. You've got to do that. That's broken. This is the new thing that's going to make you 50 million bucks in five minutes. It's all over the place. At the end of the day, the job is just to do the basics well. And if you do the basics well for a long time and find small incremental improvements over a long time, that actually turns into a big result. So yeah, my final thought would be just do the basics well. It's not you know, we don't need to reinvent wheels. All the knowledge is out there. There's people f- like far smarter than, than me, for sure, that have gone out and figured out like what is the optimal way to grow a company or to grow marketing or to grow sales. And they've written blueprints and followed the basics. And I, I think yeah. kind of copying that froze up again. implementing it in your own business with a bit of a twist makes the most sense. And tell me if I'm wrong, but the, the parting thought here is don't don't always be chasing the shiny object because there's always a new shiny object in marketing. Practically every month something new comes out that can take you away from your priorities. But stick to the basics and, and generally play the long game. And that still means driving the right type of traffic to your website and understanding who that traffic is, who are those companies, and then following up the right way. Well, let's wrap it up. Hey, Rowan, thanks for being with me. I really appreciate it. Can't wait to launch this episode. We covered some, some amazing things. And everybody listening, go and check out Snitcher. You really will benefit by that knowledge of who's coming to your website. All right. Great talking with you today, Rowan. Thanks for having me, Barry. Bye. Another great episode in the books. Hope you enjoyed it. If you want to get notified when future episodes drop, be sure to subscribe to Paris Talks Marketing on your favorite podcast player. And to learn more about our growth marketing agency, visit hop.online. That's hop, H-O-P dot online. Have a great day.